This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Madeline Jenner, coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. When Julia Gillard introduced the National Disability Insurance Scheme back in 2013, it was billed as the biggest change to social services since the introduction of Medicare. Over the past six years, the idea of a National Disability Insurance Scheme has found a place in our nation's hearts. Today, we inscribe it in our nation's finances. And the NDIS has changed the lives of many. We know what it was like to live without the NDIS. We do not want to go back to those days. We must ensure that this scheme is sustainable and we need flexibility on where we access our supports um, for people with disability in the scheme, outside of the scheme and for everybody in the community. But some have struggled to get the support they need and a decade on, the scheme is facing huge cost blowouts. This week, the federal government released a review into the program with 26 recommendations. The National Disability Insurance Scheme is here to stay. It is not going away, but we need to get it back on track. Among the recommendations are plans to create more services outside the NDIS, allowing greater access for families through schools and daycares. There's also a plan to change how people access the scheme and to crack down on overcharging and shonky providers. I think fundamentally the NDIS has meant that disabled people for the first time uh, across the country can mostly, if they have severe disability, get the kinds of supports that they need. And this is completely different than than the way things were before the NDIS. Elle Gibbs is from the Disability Advocacy Network Australia. But the scheme is complicated and accessing it is hard, navigating it is difficult. And so many people talk about the NDIS as like their second full-time job. And that can't be the way our public services run. Most of our, we try and make sure that public services aren't as difficult. You know, when we go to the doctor, we give the Medicare card and we don't actually have to do much more. But the NDIS, to engage with it, requires this enormous amount of bureaucracy. And so that's been part of, you know, the challenges that have been there, as well as navigating actually getting the supports that you need. And so when it comes to what we've heard this week, do you feel like those issues will be addressed? Yeah, I mean, I think that some of that complexity has been looked at. I mean, there is proposed to be this new role called a navigator that I think specifically talks to those complex uh, issues around both getting access to the scheme, but then figuring out how to use the scheme once you're in there to which providers you might want to use, how you actually implement your supports, what you can do when you have the supports, all of that stuff. But the biggest part of what the review has recommended is to address the real unfairness in the NDIS. And so that's been what's happened over the last 10 years where people in the scheme, yes, are getting the kinds of supports they need. But what has happened is outside the NDIS, people with disability have not only got nothing in terms of individualised supports or in the community, but also our regular public services like transport and health and education have actually got less accessible and less inclusive for so many disabled people. Yeah, and so there's a fair bit of jargon to unpack here, but this is a new system called foundational supports, right, which would offer state-based services in schools and daycares and those kinds of things. Yeah. So if you think about it as a triangle, 
So in the triangle, we've got at the bottom, the, the largest bit of the triangle, we've got mainstream community services. So, you know, public services, the same things that everybody accesses, public transport, you know, accessible housing, the health system, education, all of that kind of stuff. Most of that at the moment isn't, doesn't really work for people with disability, even though we're nearly 20% of the population. So there's lots of public transport, still isn't fully accessible. We're still building houses that don't have basic access uh, built into the structures of them. Our education system doesn't work for so many kids with disability. And our health system also isn't accessible. And then the next two layers are what's called targeted and general foundational supports, because we really need more jargon when it comes to the NDIS. So what this is about is making sure that there are some lower level supports in the community for people who need them without necessarily having to tackle the whole big NDIS. So to be honest, some of this is reinventing the wheel. So things that existed before the NDIS, stuff like home and community care. So if people need a bit of help with cleaning or with gardening or with doing their shopping, um, that they're able to get it without actually having to tackle the full-blown NDIS. And at the moment, if you're under 65, you can't. And so it really is a massive hole for people who don't necessarily have family or other kinds of supports, but desperately need that kind of support to stay in their home. And then right at the top of the pyramid is the individualised supports that people with very significant disability use now and will continue to get. If you talk to any parent who's perhaps trying to get early intervention for their child, at the moment it's very expensive, it really depends on where you live in the country and often there are really long waiting lists. Are you hopeful there's enough in this to change that? What we're going to need to make this work, particularly for kids and families, is a significant investment in like workforce. Um, we can't ask, you know, the fantastic early childhood educators and primary school teachers to do more with the current system that they have. They're underfunded and overworked as it is. So we have to see a significant investment both in terms of the workforce and the capacity and the resources that early childhood and schools have in order to make this system work. But what it's going to mean is that for kids with developmental delay, and that's now like quite a lot of kids, about 20% of kids have some kind of developmental delay, they're not going to have to get a diagnosis to sit in public hospital waiting lists, you know, trying to see someone before they can actually get supports. The supports will be available where they already are and hopefully it will mean that more of the kids were able to get the supports exactly when they need it because at the moment there's no support outside the NDIS. So it's been no wonder that people have been uh, trying to get supports through the scheme because it has been absolutely life-changing for so many families who cannot afford these therapies uh, for their kids without the NDIS. So amid all the talk about the cost blowouts of the scheme, we've also heard reports about shonky operators and, and even fraud. Are they key concerns that you hear when you talk to people? Yeah, look, it's something that our members talk about all the time. So disability advocates across the country um, are, you know, hear from people with disability um, who come to them asking for help when they've been ripped off by providers, where they've paid for supports out of their plans but they haven't been delivered or they've had the wrong services delivered or they've had uh, been charged too much for services and had unfair contract conditions and can't get out of contracts and that kind of stuff. So I'm really interested to have a look at seeing how that is going to be addressed in the new system 
They've called for a much bigger and expanded role for the current watchdog, the Quality and Safeguards Commission. And, you know, slightly controversially, they have talked about a brand new registration system for all providers. Most providers are unregistered and the review has called for that to change and for all providers to be registered, but in a tiered graduated system. I mean, at the moment, we have providers who are unregistered who are able to provide what's called supported independent living, which is the high level supports for people with very complex needs. And we know that there is abuse and violence happening in those places, but there is no visibility of that or regulation of that at all. Another big change is a move away from access being tied to medical diagnosis. Instead, it's focusing on functional impairment. So I guess what you can and, and can't do, what services you might need. How important is is that change? Yeah, look, I think that's really important. And it is Yes, about functional impairment, but more about need. So what do people actually need? What is happening in their lives from their disability that they need support to manage? So the way that the NDIS has worked, it's had this weird system where they've asked you to have a primary disability and then that has influenced the way that plans have been rolled out and often it causes absolute chaos for people because I don't know about, you know, lots of disabled people, myself included, have multiple disabilities. So it is very difficult to kind of just go pick one. uh, And then uh, so they're going to do away with that system and have something that really looks at the whole person Um, and not just the disability, but also their life circumstances. So how do they want to live their lives and make sure it is much more, you know, I think the panel said said this week it is fair. They want it to be fair, consistent and empowering and that the current system was really traumatising for so many people. And that is absolutely true. So, you know, imagine, you know, a government system that is profoundly traumatising is one that has to change. Elle Gibbs from the Disability Advocacy Network Australia. Nowhere is safe in Gaza. That's the warning from the United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, as the conflict enters its third month. Since the end of the temporary ceasefire just over a week ago, fighting has increased, particularly in the south. Millions have fled in that direction, hoping to find safety. But as the fighting moves, they are running out of options. They scared us. They told us, go to the south because it is safe. Nothing will happen to you there. We headed to the south and they said, there is no safety here or anything. There's no safe place in Gaza. So what is likely to happen next? John Lyons is the ABC's global affairs editor. He's currently in Jerusalem. What the Israeli army has done this week essentially is push south. They had taken much of the sort of the north and a lot of the centre, Gaza City. They'd managed to secure parts of that from their point of view. But now the reason that it's at a really dangerous point, this war now, particularly dangerous, is that you now have this sort of, uh, if you like, a collision. You have the Israeli army pushing into 1.8 or 2 million people in Gaza who are being pinned up against essentially that southern border with Egypt. 
And so, you know, the question I suppose that I would raise is what happens when the Israeli army, who is feared by these people, pushes further and further? Do they then try to push through the gate, essentially the border, um, the Rafa crossing into Egypt, which would create a refugee crisis? And during the temporary ceasefire, some aid was getting in. Now, it certainly wasn't enough. But what do we know about how much aid is getting into the area now and and how much support people are getting? Look, it's still desperate. Some did get in, but the total of aid that has gone in over the last eight weeks would only amount to really two or three or four days of normal assistance that would need to go in there to feed and to you know keep the 2.3 million Gazans going. Aid workers are now reporting that people are becoming desperate and looting various warehouses where there might be supplies of flour or bread or food or anything. There's not much fresh water in there. We know that some premature babies have died because the formula that they were given had contaminated water. There's just simply not enough fresh water in there. Uh, We know diseases are starting to spread. When you get that many people who are essentially displaced, the United Nations is saying as much as 60% of accommodation has been destroyed by Israeli bombing. So you've got these, and as well, even some of the places that weren't destroyed, people have abandoned them to try to get away from the the combat. So you have this sort of refugee crisis within a tiny, you know, enclave. And so, you know, there's nowhere to go. We've seen the UN Secretary General write this week that fighting is now threatening the maintenance of international peace and security. He has been calling for a ceasefire all along, but this week he invoked a rare power called Article 99. What is that and and will it make any real difference? In practical terms, it it won't really make a difference to Israel. Israel always does sort of say that, you know, the, the United Nations is inherently biased against it. So they're not going to listen terribly much to that Antonio Guterres Article 99 um, invocation. But what it does do is it's, it, it raises and elevates the level of awareness. Essentially, what he's saying is that he's describing it more or less as an apocalyptic situation. It's a rarely used um, article. It's sort of, it's at the pleasure of the Secretary General, usually. And um, what he's done is he's invoked this to try to draw the world's attention to how catastrophic things are in Gaza. And certainly, Benjamin Netanyahu is committed to continuing the fighting. He says he won't stop until the hostages are brought home and Hamas is destroyed. But his personal future is really tied up in this fight too, isn't it? Well, that's right. And and I think that's one of the really tricky political dynamics here is that Benjamin Netanyahu has a lot of questions to answer over the October 7 invasion by Hamas. Um, if a prime minister's primary duty is to protect their citizens, then on that basis he failed miserably. Um, One of his predecessors, Ehud Barak, the most distinguished soldier in this country, he says that basically Benjamin Netanyahu shouldn't have his job, that he failed the people of Israel. And so the moment this war is over, 
Benjamin Netanyahu is, is in a lot of political trouble because there'll be a lot of inquiries and he'll be held to account. Um, and there was a poll recently, the Baral and university polled Jewish Israelis on how much they trusted Prime Minister Netanyahu to guide them through this war, and he rated 4%. So he has a crisis. Um, however, mid-war or during a war, Israelis tend to sort of lock in behind the leader. They don't want to have to try to to get rid of a leader in the middle of a war because, you know, Hamas would see that as some sort of victory and, and for all sorts of instability reasons. But he's in trouble. And that raises the really confronting question, too, is of is it in his interest as a, as a prime minister who's in deep, deep trouble to want to keep the war going longer than it would otherwise be needed to be. And what about the attitudes in Israel itself? You were in Jerusalem at the start of the conflict and, and you're back there now. Is the public mood changing at all? What's been consistent um, in the public mood is the anger towards Hamas, towards those atrocities of October 7, and they were truly atrocious these were innocent people, babies, children, old people who were carrying on their lives peacefully in Israel on that Saturday morning. And so the mood is absolute determination to get revenge against Hamas and to try to destroy Hamas as a military machine so that they can never again be in a position to do it. But within that general mood, there are a couple of other subcurrents, and one of them is that there's growing anger from families of the hostages, and a lot of those families are becoming increasingly agitated that the Netanyahu government is not getting them out as a priority. And the other issue, too, is that being in Israel, the each night, you know, Israelis are watching the summary of the news on their TV sets and so forth, and I, I often tune in to see what they're watching, and I speak some Hebrew, and you see what I think is a sanitised version of the war. You'll never see that what we see around the world, the terribly distressing scenes we've all seen, hard to watch. In fact, I even have to turn away sometimes. They're not seeing any of those pictures. What they're seeing each night is a clinical operation by a professional army who's strategically targeting this. They might see a building reduced to rubble, but of course that was a Hamas commander, the commentary will say. And so they are a bit bewildered when they hear the US Vice President Kamala Harris saying that quite angrily that too many Palestinians have died at the hands of these Israelis. They're bewildered. That they just don't understand why, what the problem is. They think that the war is going quite well. And what about that international pressure? You, you mentioned Kamala Harris, and the US is certainly applying some pressure on Israel about when this war will end. But is there any sense that that pressure is building or, or building enough to change the course of the war? Well, I think that the Americans will be, you know, they'll be there till the end. They'll support Israel all the way for various reasons. But I think the Europeans and I think others, I think, you know, you're seeing Emmanuel Macron in France came out some weeks ago, actually, and was quite critical of Israel, having started off being a very strong supporter of Israel's, you know, quote, right to defend itself um, against Hamas. Now, I think there's a lot of people around the world who are saying, is this really 
self-defense. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu is warning Hezbollah that, you know, don't you dare sort of attack us or we'll do to you what we've done to Gaza, basically. Now, those sorts of phrases, I think, around the world will resonate badly because the implication there is we've reduced Gaza to rubble. We can do the same to Beirut or to you as well. And I know he's trying to warn Hezbollah against attacking from Lebanon, but to use those sorts of phrases, I think, will make a lot of people very uncomfortable. John Lyons, the ABC Global Affairs Editor in Jerusalem. If you've walked through a supermarket recently, it'll be no surprise that prices are going up. And this week, the Greens have won support for a Senate inquiry to look into whether the two major supermarkets are engaging in price gouging and ultimately examine whether the situation is fair for consumers. Ultimately, competition is one thing that can bring prices down, but there is a massive lack of competition, particularly in rural and regional Australia, where often you're either shopping uh, at one of the big two major supermarkets or you're shopping at the corner shop and there's not much in between. That's Greens Senator Nick McKim. So can an inquiry really reduce how much you pay at the checkout? Dr Louise Grimmer is a retail expert from the University of Tasmania. Coles and Woolworths have dominated the Australian supermarket industry for many, many years. They now um, have a share of around about 60 to 70%. So what that means is that every 60 or 70 cents that we spend on grocery shopping is spent at either a, a Coles or a Woolworths. And they've been around for a long time. So, you know, Coles started here in 1914, Woolworths a little bit later in 1924. And in terms of the, the number of stores that they have around the country, Woolworths has just over a thousand coals, just shy of nine hundred. If you think about that with um, our population, that's you know they really do have uh, the duopoly in Australia, and it's a very very concentrated duopoly. But it's been that way for a for a very long time. So it's been announced that there'll be a Senate inquiry to to look at supermarkets. What do we know about what it will look at? Yes, so the um, Senate inquiry has been um, called by the Greens and I think I've just seen Jackie Lambie recently on television talking as well. What they're hoping the Senate inquiry will look at are issues around market share. So that's the, you know, the duopoly of Coles and Woolworths. Um, It's also going to look at this notion of alleged, and I have to use the word alleged, alleged price gouging, and also around some of the validity of the discounts that are being offered. Both Coles and Woolworths have um, released statements saying that they totally understand, um, you know, the pressure that Australian consumers are under, um, the fact that Australian households are really being squeezed on all fronts. And if you have a look at some of the advertising that both of these stores have been doing lately, they've really changed some of the um, communication. So it's all around, we're here to help you save money. Here are the ways that you can spend less at our stores. That's something you would never normally... um, see, you know, in in, uh, supermarket advertising. So I think what they're trying to do there is is show that they are aware of the problem, that they're trying to help. But I think what we've seen from the Greens and and from Jackie Lambie too is probably a little bit dramatic. Um, And, you know, sort of I think Nick McKim said he wants to smash the duopoly and, you know, these sorts of words and things. But I think it's a lot more 
complicated than that. When it comes to something like price gouging, we're, we're talking about both companies allegedly working together to set a price. That's that's what price gouging is, right? Yeah. So price gouging is um, is where there's you know the prices um, suddenly you know have a sudden increase in price. Now that's not actually illegal in Australia, um, according to the ACCC. Businesses can set their own prices. Generally, they can set their own prices, and um, you know it's things like supply and demand that um, impact on prices. And you know there have been a lot of reasons why Coles and Woolworths have said that their prices have been going up, which I can come back to in a minute. But um, so price gouging, yeah, sudden increase in prices. And I guess if you see two competitors that are allegedly putting their prices up at the same time, that's what sort of I think got people quite exercised about this. Um, but the ACCC really can only investigate and take action where a business is misleading consumers about pricing. So, you know, the ACCC is fairly limited in their role. They don't set prices for goods and services. Um, so their hands are sort of tied. So, you know, in my opinion, I sort of think whilst this inquiry is going to shine a spotlight on Coles and Woolworths, and we know that, um, you know, the CEOs, Brad Banducci of Woolworths and Leah Weckert from Coles will be appearing, I- I'm not actually sure that it's it's really going to have um, some tangible outcomes for Australian consumers. You mentioned that prices are going up, and I'm sure everyone feels that when they walk through the supermarket. Now, the supermarkets say that that's simply happening because the cost of everything's going up. Right. Mm. Uh, look, I th- I think so. Um, we've seen um, statements come out in the last couple of days from both Coles and Woolworths, and I mean we know these things that they're talking about. We've seen um, increases in costs all along supply chains. Um, now that's as a result of that tail coming out of the pandemic, but it's also because of some of the unrest that we're seeing um, internationally as well. So, you know, they have targeted increases in prices around energy costs all along the sort of logistics chain, but right back to even the the ingredients, the raw ingredients or, or supplies for food products. So things like wheat and dairy, we've seen a huge increase in. So breads and cereals are up by about 11.2%. Dairy's up uh, by about 50 at about 15.2% at the moment and that's because you know we trade on the world market for things like wheat and dairy products so what the supermarkets are saying is that all of these prices are going up all the way along their supply chain and they are simply responding to those price increases. Now, maybe they're over-egging the pudding a bit too, but there's no doubt that we've seen it in other industries as well. Is there anything else that would work? I mean, or does it come down to the fact that with a population the size of Australia's, there isn't necessarily room for more players? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about um, our population, what is it, about 25, 26 million people, but we're spread over a huge geographic location in our country. And, you know, think about the distances between some of the um, major capital cities, especially, you know, think about getting goods to Perth, for example, or Tasmania, where I live. Um, We really don't have a huge population. And it's very difficult for um, competitors to break into this space. We know that obviously Audi is a player that's coming into the market in the last few years, but Audi's not everywhere. We don't have it in Tasmania where I live. Um, and it's certainly, if you think about that sort of 60% monopoly that Coles and Woolworths has, Audi hasn't really sort of chipped away at that too much. That remaining sort of 20 to 30% is Aldi. And then you've got sort of the IGA network and, and other smaller independent 
um, stores. So really, um, I, I really don't see this duopoly going away anytime soon. And um, and as we know, the, you know, at the moment, the ACCC doesn't really have the power to, to do much about this. And I really don't know whether this Senate inquiry will will have the power, you know, will come out with recommendations to have powers to do much about it either. Dr Louise Grimmer from the University of Tasmania. And that's the episode for the week. Subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Laura Corrigan, Anna John and me, Madeline Jenner. Catch you next time. Listener.